Good morning, everyone. I couldn't help but think as we were singing that last song and looking around that this stable has come a long way. Uh, I never saw it when it was a stable, but it has changed a lot over the years that we've been here and uh, keeps getting better, and we're just thankful for that. You know, one improvement that I've always thought, wished we could make would be to get rid of all these columns. Why didn't we? Because the building would fall without them. Exactly, exactly. In fact, as one architect explained to me, uh, being an octagon in shape, if you took out any one of these columns, the building would fall. So we leave the columns in place. In Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, Paul lists seven items that are each preceded by the word one. There's one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of us all. Each of those things that Paul mentions there are supporting columns of our faith. They are the pillars that hold everything up. They've been described at times as the core beliefs of Christian faith. They're not everything that we believe. There are a lot of things that we believe that, that are, are not listed there, but the, everything that we do believe is tied to these and supported by these. And if we tried to do without any one of these, the whole thing would collapse. And so as followers of Jesus, we treasure these seven things that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're beginning a series called We Believe. And the idea behind this is to examine each of these seven items that Paul lists, the, the seven ones as they are sometimes called in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Now why are we doing that? Well, I'd remind you that a few weeks ago we talked about Tom Rainer's book that was entitled Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. And you remember that Rainer had done a lot of research to find out why people who at one time were not believers, people who did not go to church at all, what motivated them to go and what factors were important to them. One of the myths that had gone around in the church growth movement for a long, long time was that people on the outside of the church are not interested in doctrine. And Rainer found that that was not true. Uh, the people that he interviewed said no. And in fact, people who are outside who are considering coming in want to know what we believe. That's one of the most important things to them is to know what Christians believe and that effective churches, and by effective, remember that means effective at leading people to Christ. Effective churches know what they believe and they know how to articulate it. They know what they believe and they are emphatic about doctrine. Doctrine isn't something that effective churches hide. It's not something that effective churches are apologetic for. It's not something that effective churches just try to work around without mentioning it, mentioning them. They are the doctrines that they believe and that they hold to be true. And they make those readily known to anyone who is willing to listen. So what we need to do, I think, is go back to basics. We need to be sure we all believe. We need to be sure that we all believe the same thing. We need to be sure that all of us believe. And we need to learn how to tell others what it is that we believe. And Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 is a great place to start. And I hope that by the end of this series, every member of the Glen Allen Church would be able to name these seven ones 
and to give at least a basic explanation of what each one of them means and why it's important. That's what we're going to be aiming at over the next several weeks. But first, we need to put these three verses in their proper context within the letter. We always want to pay attention to context, and we want to do that this morning in talking about this letter. Ephesians is a letter that divides very readily into two distinct parts. Part one is chapters one through three. Chapters one through three are sometimes described as the doctrinal, or some prefer the term theological, portion of the letter, where Paul states certain truths, certain things that we do believe, certain principles that are a part of the message of the gospel. Then chapters four through six are what are sometimes described as the practical or ethical section of the letter, where Paul says on the basis of what's in chapters one to three, here's how you ought to live. Here's what you ought to do with this. You'll see this structure frequently in Paul's letters where he gives what's called the indicative, where he says this is what's true, and then the imperative, this is what you do with what's true. So that's what he's doing in Ephesians. He's telling us in chapters 1 through 3 what is true, what God has done in Christ, and then he's telling us in chapters 4 through 6 this is the difference this ought to make in the way that you and I live, in the way that we conduct our lives. And notice that for Paul, Christian behavior is always rooted in Christian doctrine. It's always rooted in theological truth. It's never just moralism. Paul is not just out to give a list of do's and don'ts. He's not a person who just says, here are the rules. He's saying, this is what God has done, and because of what God has done, this is what we must do in response. That's where our lives as Christians uh, are based. So let's ask, first of all, what does he say in part one? What are those truths? I'll point out just several of them to you. First of all, he starts in chapter 1 by saying that God in Christ, through Christ, has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that a great statement? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. There is not one thing that you and I need that we don't have through Jesus. And then he says after that that in Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Those are two of the really biggies that we need, aren't they? Those are two of the most important things. The spiritual blessings include redemption and forgiveness of sins. Then he says that all of this is part of God's divine plan to unite all things in Christ. He's bringing everything together in his son, Jesus Christ. Believers, he says, are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. When we obey the gospel of Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit living within us, and that's just a down payment. That's just a beginning, but it's a guarantee of what is to come when we find our, our lives entirely uh, absorbed into God when Jesus comes again. Then he says, God has put all things under Christ's feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. We never have to wonder or have to ask who's the head of the church. We know who's the head of the church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. Anybody who says they are the head of the church is not telling the truth. Anybody who says that any human being is the head of the church is not telling the truth. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. God has made him the head over all things for the church. 
Then in chapter 2, he says, You who once were dead in sins and trespasses have been made alive through Christ. And then he makes that great statement that's probably the most beautiful thing he ever wrote when he said, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. But it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And because salvation is by faith and not by the law, he says even the Gentiles who did not formerly know God have been brought near in the blood of Christ. Because it's not about the law anymore. Those who were far off, those who who didn't know anything about God, didn't know anything about the law, didn't know anything about his will and probably didn't care, have now been brought near in the blood of Christ. And then he says by his death, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that had existed for centuries between Jews and Gentiles and created instead a new humanity made up of both, made up of people of all nations, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all bound together, all united together in the one body of Christ. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He says this great mystery of what God was doing is now revealed in the gospel that he preached. People didn't know for centuries what God was up to. What was he doing? What was he going to do? Don't you know that Abraham wondered that when God made those promises to him? That he wondered, where's all this headed? What is all this leading to? What does it mean that in in my seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Paul says now it's been revealed. And that's the gospel that Paul preached And part of that mystery, he says, is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Don't ever let anybody discount the church. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the church isn't important. There are a lot of people who say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't care anything about the church. They just haven't read their Bible. You can't really believe in the real Jesus and in his teachings and not care about the church because Paul says it is God's eternal plan. This was always in the mind of God that through the church, God's wisdom would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That was his eternal purpose. That's part one. That's chapters one through three. When you get to chapter four in verse one, you get the beginning of of part two. And notice the very first word of Ephesians 4 and verse 1. It's the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to stop and ask, what's that therefore? Because therefore is always pointing backward to what's been said before. Therefore, on the basis of what's been said, here's what now you need to do. And that's what Paul's doing. Therefore, on the basis of all these great truths that he stated in chapters 1 through 3, here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to live. And he says, first of all, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to walk or live our lives in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What's that calling? It's the calling we received from the gospel. It's the calling that we received to come and follow Jesus and be redeemed by him and and become like him. 
be saved by him. That's that calling. We need to live up to that. Basically what Paul is saying, beginning in chapter 4, is here's how you become what you are. Here's how you live up to what God has done for you. Here's how you live up to what God has made you. I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling. We're not worthy. He's not saying that. I'm urging you to become worthy. We won't be worthy, but we can live worthily. We can live our lives in a way that is worthy of what God has done for us in Christ to be the people that Paul describes in chapters 1 through 3. Then he says in verse 2 that that requires some specific attitudes. Specific attitudes. One of those is humility. Another is gentleness. Another is patience. And he says bearing with one another in love. Now he's going somewhere with this. He's going to verse 3. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not splintering into factions, whether Jewish and Gentile or rich or poor or uh, male or female or anything else. But maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And notice he says being eager to do that. The word The original word literally implies making a great effort. Making a great effort to maintain unity. You know, we need to all ask ourselves, am I making an effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace? Am I doing everything I can do to help the church be united in the way that God wants it to be united? Because I want you to notice what Paul says. He doesn't say you need to be eager to create unity within the church. The Holy Spirit has already done that. The Holy Spirit's already done that. All we need to do is maintain it. But that's not always easy to do. And so we need to work at maintaining it. What we're called to do is not create the unity. We're just called to not mess up the unity that God has created when he created the church. And we need to pay very careful attention that we do that. Now, when we think about unity, a lot of times, or we read in the Bible about unity, a lot of times what we're thinking about is institutional unity. What do I mean by institutional unity? I mean not dividing into factions or denominations uh, as, such as is common in the, in the world today. And that's true enough. A call to unity rules that out. A call to unity says that shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be that way. We're accustomed to it. We're used to it in the world, but that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean God likes it. Doesn't mean it was part of the plan of Christ. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus wanted. Read John 17, that great prayer that he prayed the night before he went to the cross. He prayed for unity. So we're not thinking so much about institutional unity. When Paul writes Ephesians 4, what he's usually thinking about is congregational unity. That's why he's writing to everybody in the church. He's not just writing to religious leaders. Because you see, unity within the church is not created in some boardroom, in some headquarters somewhere. Unity is maintained between the people who are sitting next to each other in church and the people who are greeting one another before and after and the people who are serving God together. That's where unity is maintained. That's how unity is maintained. It's on that level. And that's where each and every one of us comes in. We need to be a part of maintaining that that unity. 
If you look on the front of your order of worship there, you'll see our, our vision statement for the Glen Allen Church. To be the light of Christ united in love. To be the light of Christ united in love. Why? Because you can't be the light of Christ if you're not united in love. If we're not united in love, we're not going to show the light of Christ to anybody. Jesus himself said it. John chapter 13 and verse 35. When he was washing the feet of his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we demonstrated the love of Christ to one another in the way that we should, we wouldn't have to persuade people that we are God's people. We wouldn't have to persuade people that we are followers of Jesus. They would look at us and say nothing else could possibly explain that. Nothing else could possibly explain why in a world of strife and hostility and even violence that's going on day by day and moment by moment that these people love each other so much. What is the reason for that? And when that is there, we won't have to persuade people that we are Christ's people. They will know it by the love that we are demonstrating toward one another. So being the light of Christ united in love, that brings us to verses 4 through 6. You've been sitting there all this time thinking you said we were going to talk about that, and now you're here. <laughs> Took a while, but here we are. Verses 4 through 6 are so important. Why? Because they remind us that unity in Christ is not emotionally based, and it is not socially based. In other words, unity in Christ is not about the fact that we just happen to like each other or find each other attractive or appealing in some way. It's not based on the fact that we just happen to have a common viewpoint about life and, and uh, politics and all those other things. And you, Listen, you can find that in a civic association or you can find that in an athletic club or you can find that in your neighborhood organization. You can find that anywhere. The unity of the body of Christ is based on the doctrinal truths that Paul states in verses 4 through 6. That one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. It is those shared beliefs that draw us together and that keep us together. That's where the unity of the church is based that's what keeps the church solvent. That's what is what keeps us being who we are. We all believe those things, not because we necessarily like those things or because they appeal to us. We believe them because they are the truth. And they are the truth that has been revealed by God. And that is that truth that has saved us. And that's where unity has to begin and where it has to be maintained is by holding on to those truths. You already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We live in a world that does not value what we believe. It does not value the truths that we hold. We're not going to hold on to these truths because the world says, a boy, that's a good thing. Go for that. We like that. That appeals to us. Go that way. No, we're going to hold on to those truths in spite of what the world says. We're going to hold on to those truths in spite of what everybody around us thinks. We're going to hold on to those truths if we're the only one in the room, the only one in the community, the only one in the world that continues to believe them. We're going to hold on to those truths. 
because they are the basis of unity and they are the reality by which we have been saved. We are going to believe those things because we believe. We are believers in Christ, no matter what the world thinks. So Ephesians 4 4, 5, and 6 is not just a list of things. Rather, it is the basic principles of everything that we believe. Everything that we believe is somehow, somehow connected to those seven things in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Right, I'm going to ask you to do something. You open your Bible if you want to. In fact, that's not, never a bad thing to do. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. I want you to say those seven ones with me. All right, let's say those seven ones together. There is one body. Boy, that was weak. Let's try that again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. I hope you'll remember that by next week because we're going to go down the rows and say it individually. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Now, we're not going to do that, but we need to know those seven ones. Take a look at the columns again in this room. Take a look at the fact that they hold up the building. And every time you come in this building, I hope you'll look at those columns and instead of thinking, I wish those weren't there. Every time you look at those columns, I want you to remember that we also have columns that uphold our faith. And those columns are the things that you and I have just said together. And that the only way to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is by holding fast to those seven truths that Paul states. The only way to be the people of God that he has called us to be is by holding fast to those truths that we've just said together. And the only way to effectively lead other people to Christ, which is what we are supposed to be about, is to be sure that we believe them without question and that we are ready to state them to anyone to whom we have the opportunity to say it. We believe, and this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. If you're not part of that community of faith today, you have not yet declared your faith in Christ. You have not yet repented of your sins. You've not yet been baptized into Christ to have those sins washed away and begun living a new life. We want to encourage you to do that. That's what it takes to follow Jesus. No apologies about that. Some people will tell you just feel good about Jesus in your heart or say some little prayer that somebody made up. That's not what scripture says. It says repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we're calling on you to do today. And if you're ready to do it, come right now and tell us. Let's stand and sing.